Okay, today I'm gonna get a little bit mm, passionate about something. We're gonna talk about the origins of the folk tune arrangement, so to speak. This is Early Music Monday. There's this battle that goes on in my head as a conductor of when I'm picking music, I'm mostly concerned about the program as a whole, the story I'm trying to tell, the the mood and the flow and all that kind of fluffy stuff. But at the same time, I also do this battle of something old, something new, something new, something old, something uh, nulled in the middle. And it's just really, man. So what I'm trying to say is a lot of times there's a difference between something old that's good and timeless and something old that's really overdone and kind of not that great. And then something that's kind of trendy So, my wife and I are building a house. Zero out of ten would recommend. Unless you can afford someone to design it for you and make all the decisions. Decisions are the worst. Man. What kind of, what color do you want of this? And as a colorblind person, I don't, I'm not helpful. So, it's like, okay, what color tile do you want? Then what color cabinets do you want? Then what color knobs and handles do you want on those cabinets? Then how is that going to go with the countertops? Then do you want backsplash or what are you going to do on the walls? What color paint? What kind of mirrors are you going to do? What kind of light fixtures? Are you going to have a ceiling fan? Where are you going to put the countertop? I mean, the, I mean, you're obviously going to put the countertop on top of the cabinets, but where are you going to put the island? What are you going to do in this room? What color should this be? Oh, it's exhausting. But something I learned in looking at the magical world of Pinterest, which is new to me, there's some cool stuff on there, by the way. But you can tell, and, and well, okay, before I get into Pinterest, we were then driving around different neighborhoods, house coveting, sorry, house uh, observing. And you can tell, like, we would drive past a really nice neighborhood. It'd be like, oh, this was the fancy neighborhood in the 90s where it still looks nice and it still looks good and the homes are still, you know, the people are fairly well off or still extremely well off, but it's just dated. It's dated and old, but still nice. Then there's the houses that are you can tell were really nice but did not age well at all. Kind of like uh, some unnamed movie stars who choose to put plastic into their body. Does not age well. Then there's like the homes where you can't actually tell when it was built but it's just timeless and it's going to be in style forever. And that's kind of 
my wife Liz, that's Liz and I's personality is the like, we want this to last forever. And what's going to be really timeless, aka nothing super duper bold, nothing super colors aren't insanely crazy, not too far out there designs. Those are really cool. And they're awesome. But they're going to date really fast. And so I was thinking about how that applies to early music because you don't want to you don't want music that feels dated you're like oh this sounds kind of like a a piece that was written in the 70s aka the 1770s but someone just wrote it like this year you don't want it you don't want it to be something that's like oh this style fades super fast like a one-hit wonder like a call me maybe I don't even know who sang that, but did she write anything else? Nope. One song, super catchy, gone, done. Why is that? Like, what causes that phenomenon? The one-hit wonder blows my mind of, like, one hit, it's really trendy, it's got 8 billion downloads, even though there's not even that many people on the planet. So how do you, like... I don't know. So how do you compose something? How do you select some if you're picking music for concerts and stuff? How do you find the stuff that's timeless? Well, I have a proposal. My proposal is that counterpoint is the solution. Counterpoint is the answer always. Really good counterpoint is what makes something timeless. Now, there are other factors, such as texture and tempo, meter, harmony, melody, text, no text, etc., etc., timbre, we could go on and on. So there's all kinds of other factors, but the one common denominator throughout all of history of the music that has lasted and stood the test of time is music that contains counterpoint. I don't care if it's like folk music or if it's the highest brow high art music in the world or anything in between. Good line, good melody, good counterpoint, interaction of line is what makes something timeless and stand the test of time. Now, that doesn't mean you can just, like, copy something from the past and just do it. I had a composition teacher, really wise, he told me, he says, look, if you're going to write something that sounds like Beethoven, who do you think people are going to listen to? Cameron sounding like Beethoven or Beethoven sounding like Beethoven? They're going to pick Beethoven sounding like Beethoven every time. And that never left me. So, the reason why, okay, I'm trying not to, like, yell with excitement and with just feelings, but the reason why, then, early music is so important to study and so important to get a grasp on is because it contains the building blocks 
well, a couple reasons. Number one, it contains the building blocks upon which all music was built throughout all time, every culture going forward. Seriously, the same building blocks that shape Eastern music shape Western music. They're just applied very differently. But sound functions the same way to all humans. It is a frequency that hits our ears. Different cultures have different aesthetics of what they find pleasing or what they how they use different sounds and like musical combinations of those sounds but the sound is primal as we've talked about with Andrew the second reason why early music is so important to study is because it's a way to and as we've also talked about with Andrew a way to create something fresh and new without being trendy and one hit wondery because we don't want to be one hit wondery so that's my rant about being timeless again to further clarify it doesn't necessarily mean that we're just going to copy and paste palestrina into today and say cool it's timeless it just means that there's something innately like eternal or timeless or primal about that music that we gravitate towards and we will always gravitate towards for some reason i don't know why that is but there's something about it now if you take composers like ernesto herrera that we've had on the show or Andrew Maxfield, obviously, that we've talked to a bunch about this, or, you know, even take pieces like Saint-Chapelle by Eric Whitaker, all kinds of things where it incorporates these, Owen Park does this a lot too, which is amazing, he incorporates these very, very overt early music sounds, not just principles, but actual sounds, like this sounds like chant, why does it sound like chant? Well, what mode are they using? What scale degrees do they keep coming back to? What is the shape of the melody? All of those things determine the, the nature and timbre of the, the line or the chant, and then they incorporate that with different harmonies. And so something that I, that I really struggle with is when there's these folk tunes or common tunes that everyone has an arrangement of. I just, that doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to do, or that composers are bad or, or whatever. Like they have an idea of, oh, this melody sounds cool. I have a different idea of how to interpret that, which is cool in its own right, and that's a different discussion. However, I think that finding... There is a way to do it in which it's timeless, and there's a way to do it in which it's one-hit wondery. There's got to be a better way, better way to say that besides trendy. Trendy sounds too like – anyway, that's, that's trendy. You can find a middle ground between doing what's already been done over and over again and I'm going to be trendy. And – it, your original ideas are great. I'm talking to composers now. Don't ask me why. I just am. But conductors too, and singers of like try to find it. It's really, really difficult to find versions of like arrangements of folk tunes and things that are timeless and not 
overdone, basically copy-paste, and then on the other end of the spectrum, trendy. So here's my advice. My advice is, number one, find version... Well, okay. My advice is all based on my own aesthetic, first of all. So here's what I look for as a conductor, and here's what I try to do as a composer. Number one, I find I find if I'm looking to set an arrangement of a folk tune or a common melody, 100% of the time, that's because I really like that melody. So don't like change it a ton, the melody itself. You can add a couple little things, I guess, but find things that stay true to the nature of the melody because that melody is what's timeless. Number two, don't do anything too crazy or too wild in terms of, oh, I'm going to make it 18 parts and I'm going to give it three different meters at the same time and make it really complex and I'm going to do and I'm going to have all these really far out weird harmonies. That is like putting bright blue backsplash in your kitchen. It is going to look like the 70s in note. Think about the houses from the 70s. They're all so bright and odd. Brown carpet, orange walls. That's what I think of. It's weird. Just stay away. Stay away. Just say no. So if so then how do you then the construction part of does it have good counterpoint? Does the voice leading make sense? Are the lines independent but also interdependent? Do, does it have really good texture? Does it have character? Those things are all determined by, you know, musical elements such as harmony and texture and form and timbre and tessitura, all kinds of things. But the the way in which they are trying to find the balance between something new and something old, trying to weigh those options, I think is what gives it a more timeless feel. Now, that's not to say that, like, think about all the groundbreaking composers that were, like, doing revolutionary stuff. What they were doing was considered crazy and far out and weird. So how do you tell the difference between trendy, far out, crazy, and weird and game-changing, far out, and crazy and weird? I submit that I think it has to do with the why behind it. You can tell when a composer has a really strong style and a really strong motivator and a really strong why they do the things they do, why they write that way. You think about, I I really, the, the first example that always comes to my head is basically the early 20th century where we had the emergence of all of these different styles. You had expressionism, impressionism, neoclassicism, the rejection of romanticism, uh, minimalism, tintabili with Arvo Parrot. Like, there's all these really distinct uh, 
um, bold ideas coming into music. So you can be bold, but if you're wanting to make a statement and change the game, the extremity and boldness with which you do that, it has to be backed up by strong, timeless, musical principles. You go down to what is the nature of a half step? What is the nature of timbre? You know, if you think about minimalism, you think about the nature of repetition in meditation. It goes all the way back to chant. You have these repeated notes all the time in chant. Or, you know, in in terms of uh, John Cage, like the prepared piano just came to mind. The nature of sound and color of sound. Exploring the depths of it. And you're not going to do that with one simple arrangement. You have to do that with composition after composition after composition after composition. So if a composer is like that and then they wrote an arrangement, then that's not a trendy piece. So then you you go and you, you put it on the program. And I'm not saying completely stay away from trendy pieces. I do trendy pieces all the time. It's all about the balance. The force must have balance, young Padawan. Mostly speaking to myself. So then... A great example of this in early music is the mass. So, and settings of plain chant. So if you go all the way back to medieval times and you have plain chant, you have this melodic plain chant that is repeated. And that is the prayer. That is the service. It is monophonic. The monks or the nuns sing it, and that's it. There's no harmony. There's no anything. They just sing that chant, and they move on to the next part of the service. But composers who are artists said, this is kind of boring after a while. And they said, well, what if we added this? And then what if we added this? Well, what if we added two voices? What if we added three voices? Whew, insanity. So then composers started to say, well, let's take the chant, and let's then create completely new independent line for each of the other parts that are performing or singing and keep the main plain chant line the exact same. So you have the paraphrase mass, the parody mass, and the cantus firmus mass. I almost forgot. Whoa, that would have been bad. So each of these three types, and the, the mass, uh, again, most of you listening probably already know this, but for the few of you who are not complete nerds, the mass is settings of mass texts to music, and composers started to do this, you know, in the late medieval time, and it just, and then it became a tradition, especially in the, the high renaissance, and so you you have this, Okay, they would take a some sort of melody, and on, honestly, it sometimes they would take like take uh, the Lomarme Mass by Dufayi. So he takes this folk song called "The Armed Man," and then he bases or incorporates is probably a better word 
an entire setting of mass text based on that, or again, incorporating and basing his other music on this melody, The Armed Man. Bum, dum, 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 ba, ba, ba. You know the little thing you have where you're like teaching intervals to music theory students? You're like, how can you remember a perfect fourth? Here comes the bride. No. Lomarme is way more recognizable. Obviously. Come on. So this is a tradition that's gone back all the way to the medieval time and then continues forward to today. But even then, the, to- the time, the- the- nothing's changed. Just like Phil- Phil- Philip Lasser said, nothing's changed. Music's the exact same. In terms of foundational principles, they're just different combinations of those things because the combinations are endless. So you have arrangements today that are the same kind of thing where it's like, oh, there's this really popular melody. Everyone sets it, just like Lomarme. Everyone set Lomarme somewhere, some way. Super popular. Which are the ones that are still performed today? And why is that so? I'll let you decide. And I'll let you kind of do some research. I have my own thoughts. But I I tend to think that it's the ones that are based in the, the solid, timeless principles of good counterpoint, good texture, good contrast, staying true to the original melody, just like Dufayis. So now I'm going to play, we're going to fast forward through time, like 100 plus years, to British composer Robert White. Robert White set four settings of the text, Christe qui lux es et dies. Four settings, the same melody, the same chant. And I actually think that all... All of them are equal in their timelessness. So, some background about Robert White. I love Robert White. From the first time I heard a piece by Robert White, which actually, coincidentally, is Christequi Lux S et Dies 1, I was immediately just taken in. Um, it was a performance by... Oh, shoot... Mm, I think it was the Gabrielli Consort with Paul McCreesh conductor Songs of Farewell might have been the album. I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Anyway, I listened to it and I was just drawn in. And it, it was a strictly homophonic setting. So he'd have the chant and then a strictly homophonic harmonization of it i guess and excuse me the really cool thing about robert white is he is the perfect example of timelessness so first of all he was a chorister and an uh, an adult singer at trinity college in cambridge at cambridge and we've been talking about owen park he was also in the choir at Trinity College at Cambridge. And you think about 2000s all the way back to 1554 to 1562. It's like almost 20 years. 
No, I'm bad at math. Sorry. That's like not even 10 years. I thought it was 1540. And, and it, it doesn't matter. No need to laugh. I can hear you laughing. Anyway, <clears throat> that eight-year period, he was there singing. And it's like, wow, okay, people have been singing in that choir since before then. It's insane. Talk about timelessness. And then he succeeded his father-in-law, who was Christopher Ty, other British composer, as the master of the choristers, which is kind of intimidating. You think about succeeding your in-laws at a job. be kind of stressful, I think. And then he was so renowned in throughout his life that Thomas Morley, who was one of the most well-known composers in the country, said that he he included Robert White as one of the most seven eminent composers in England. And this continued to, his reputation continued to where then he was appointed as the organist and master of choristers at Westminster Abbey, which is, I equate that to being like, <clears throat> you know, the the Pope of British choral music. And and so I just think that, and then, you know, his music, now I will say, there are a lot of similarities between these British Tudor composers. So if you think of, uh, we've heard that, oh, we've heard that. It's like maybe on the side of the spectrum of not, inventive enough maybe perhaps but he has this very strong sense of not quite experimental but and not quite avant-garde but bold harmonies bold harmonies harmonic language and it's very it's it's kind of like you marry this Italian Monteverdi Gesualdo with kind of the British false relation Tudor era and you get Robert White which is why and I think his music is timeless because he straddles that what's new and what's old and let's put it together and you know his music kind of fell off the map during the Baroque era um, but it was rediscovered by music historians in like the classical time period and British music didn't really produce produce much of anything worthy of note during the classical time period but that's what makes the British choral sound so timeless because they just like invest in it they dig it this is the thing that they are good at and that's why I think they're probably the choir capital of the world right now so then another interesting, notable, uh, relatable fact about Robert White is that he and his whole family actually died of a plague, of the plague, which is really sad. And that happened in 1574. And so he worked, he composed, conducted, played the organ, and then died of the plague. And 
I don't. I can't think of anything more relevant to today. Of we all suffered from this plague, and some people got it and recovered. Others died. Others never got it, and it affected the whole world and musicians alike, especially choral singers. So I don't know. I just think that Robert White exemplifies the principle of timelessness, and he's not nearly as well-known as Thomas Morley or Thomas Tallis or William Byrd, but he is. his music is just as great, and it does have unique characteristics that are very unique to him that make it even more timeless because it's a shift in color, a shift in voice from the, his British, other British contemporaries. So I'm going to play Sound of Ages recording of Christequi Lux S et Ds, and this is the third setting of it. And you're going to hear, and they make no qualms about it. They have the cantor sing the chant just straight up, monophonic soloist singing chant. And then they go into verse, so to speak, and then they have it. Now, the cool thing about Robert White's setting is that it keeps the chant in its pure form in a voice all the time. The rhythms might not all be the same. He elongates those rhythms, and so it gives it a different character, but again, the chant is pure. So, here is Sound of Ages singing Robert White's Christequi Lux S et Ds 3.
Blam. There you have it. Robert White. Oh, it's so good. It fills the soul. It's like a nice, hearty breakfast. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so you can sense, you can see how he incorporates different harmonic languages, different textures, different, uh, you know, kind of colors, I guess is the word I'm looking for, different colors to color that melody with that are based in timeless contrapuntal principles. So if you're a conductor looking for music, if you're a composer writing music, if you're a listener listening to and appreciating and sharing music, I speak to myself as well. I just think we should spread the timelessness. And it it's an investment. It, it's not just like the the fluffy, trendy, doesn't take much thought or effort, just happens to you. But timelessness, it takes some investment of mental effort, and, and it's a little bit of work, but that's what makes it so worth it and so much more fulfilling. Okay, final thoughts of the day. Thought number one, be sure to check out Sound of Age's new video. We played the audio of it before, of Andrew Maxfield's new piece, The Singing Bowl. We released the video on Friday, the 16th of July, this past Friday. So be sure to check out our Facebook and our Instagram and YouTube and our website and check out the the new video. It's... um, it's really awesome. Again, you heard the piece, but now you can go watch, and watching is always better anyway, right? So go check that out. Like, comment, share, spread the word. Thing number two is I've attached in the show notes a link to a Google form of just a short little survey. It's like six to uh, it's like six or so questions of just your thoughts about Early Music Monday and how the show is going and things you think you could improve, what your favorite parts of the show are. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback in any way we can make it more enjoyable, entertaining, and informative is the goal. So please fill that out, share it with anyone else you know who listens, and we'll take that feedback to heart. And I'll try try to make this show even better. So thanks for joining me today on another solo episode talking about Timeless versus Trendy and Robert White. Be sure to like and subscribe and review and rate and share and comment and bathe and eat and exercise. Make sure that you're getting enough sleep. Stay hydrated. Stay healthy. Stay like driven keep on the grind all the good things and keep listening to choral music and keep tuning in to early music monday